and uh, I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. Good. I'm so proud that you guys, it's not an easy Sunday to come to church, you know, as you got plenty of excuses, probably still full of turkey, maybe still feeling a little bit sleepy. Uh, so I am just extra proud of you. I feel a special uh, burst of affection and pride for each of you showing up. Um, probably a good time to remind you that Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year. New Year's Day is on a Sunday this year. So I will see you guys again soon. <laughs> um, so this series, it, this is the first sermon in the series, our Advent series. Uh, one little sort of note is that we're doing something a little bit different with the preaching this, in this series. So we're sort of staggering things so that if you were to show up next week at East Campus, you would hear this sermon that I'm about to preach to you over there. And Doug Fern, if you were to come there from East, here from East next week, same deal. So we're sort of swap, swapping back and forth. Um, after that, it'll just, if you're here the whole time, you won't notice anything. But if you like to hop from place to place, this might be a time not to do that. Um, anyway, last week we hit sort of hit pause on our series in the book of Acts, but not before we saw uh, the author Luke and his comparison of these two communities, Thessalonica and Berea. And we together, we all resolved, right? We resolved that we would follow the example of the Bereans who received the word, Luke said, they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, the things that Paul had told him. They decided, they made a conscious decision not to sort of roll their eyes. Yes, we've heard this before. We know what the Bible says already. They decided to come with uh, an openness, a nobility to the word, ready to learn something new. And so here we are, as we so often are each year, back in an Advent series, and my prayer to God and my challenge to you is to have that spirit. Often we, we preach through a, a, a handful of passages. Often, you know, we revisit them every few years. My invitation to you, my challenge to you, is to let the Christmas story surprise you. To come with openness, ready to learn something new. I know that this passage has uh, opened to me in a new way. Uh, it surprised me in several ways that I'll share in a minute. Uh, nothing that will floor you or change your mind about everything. Uh, but the Lord taught me something special about himself through this passage. So, Let's dive right in. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Lauren read so well. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, many of you know that my wife Katie and I were expecting a baby. It's uh, expected to be here about the 23rd of December. Uh, so we're very excited about that, Christmas baby. We've had many hilarious jokes from the worship team about having a live nativity. Katie up on stage, you know, having your birth the day before. Uh, we have uh, sort of patiently declined those offers. Uh, but um, one of the ironic things about Matthew's account, as you read that first verse, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way is that Matthew never really tells us the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew hardly tells us anything about what happens with Mary. Uh, often, birth story, you talk about the mother. Um, Matthew's focus is instead on Joseph. If you return to uh, the birth account of Jesus in the book of Luke, however, you'd get a completely different perspective, as we did a couple years ago when we read through Luke. Luke's concern was entirely for Mary and Zechariah and how the Lord came to them. What's clear 
is that for both of Jesus' parents, it took enormous faith and courage to fulfill their role in God's plan uh, for God himself to become a little baby, as Jesus did. But Matthew focuses on Joseph's perspective in the story. And now with that very first verse, barely 25 words, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child. Matthew has painted for us a scene with enormous tension. Enormous tension. Most of it is lost on us because engagement and marriage uh, work differently for us than they did back then. Embrace and indulge me for a moment in historical background. Okay, so in the first century, marriages were often arranged by parents. Romance was not sort of the highest priority for marriage back then, and so the marriage would be arranged by the parents. Uh, It would be a girl who was approaching sort of childbearing age, maybe 12, 13, 14 in there, and she would be arranged to be married with a young uh, man who was just approaching the age where he could support a family. Um, And so uh, this act of betrothal that we read about in verse 18, uh, before they came together, sorry, Mary had been betrothed. Uh, We don't normally use that word. I'm glad they keep that word in there so that makes us go, I don't know what that means because we, don't you just instantly insert engaged and move on? Don't. (laughs) Because here's what that was. Betrothal was a legal, formal contract between a man and a woman that was observed by at least two witnesses that established the fact that these two would be married. In fact, uh, what we would call engagement, they called betrothal, was the moment when they became husband and wife. So then when we read on, it says, um, her husband Joseph, in verse 19, her husband Joseph, he's already her husband. In the eyes of everyone looking on, they are already married, and yet they went through this one year, roughly one year process that they called betrothal, where they were legally married. They had taken all the vows that we make on the wedding day, they made one year beforehand. And so they had already promised to one another fidelity and love and sort of all all the things that we expect of marriage. Um, And then after a period of that year, there would be a, a second ceremony that we would call the wedding, but they called the coming together. And so you see that right there. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. At the end of that one year, um, at at a time determined by the the husband's father, um, they would call together the wedding feast, the marriage feast. And so they would, uh, even though they were already married, already husband and wife, uh, the the man would go, go to the bride's house, get her. And she, she didn't know when that time would be. You might remember Jesus' parable of the 10 virgins, not knowing when the bride or the bridegroom would show up, right, in their lamps. It might bring some illumination to this accidental pun. Um, And so then the the groom would show up, take him, and she would move into his home. They would then consummate their marriage and all that meant. And so during this time where we find Mary and Joseph is in that awkward in-between period. In the midst of that one year of waiting, that one year of betrothal, they would not be allowed to speak with each other, really. They would have hardly any contact. They would not be sort of going on dates and all that kind of thing. It's likely they didn't know each other very well at all. And at the end, um, they would come together, but they hadn't. So it might, it, it might be your honest reaction as you read this, why, why didn't Joseph just go to Mary and kind of get her side of the story? And the fact is, especially in those times, they never would have been given a private audience with one another. They wouldn't be left alone for exactly the reasons that become points of tension in this story. Who knows what would happen? Uh, That's how they thought. So they've made their vows. They're married. And they're waiting to finally consummate their union when Joseph's father finally sends Joseph out uh, at a time that he determines. And then 
as Luke puts so delicately in our first verse, like I said, a world of tension in 25 words, so delicately puts it, she was found to be with child. These days we might say she was showing. And now uh, keep in mind, Nazareth is a small town. Remember what they would say about Jesus later? Can anything good from, come from Nazareth? This sort of backwater town. It was 200 people. No one thought much of it. 200 people. Huh, 200 people. Some of you here from a town that small, about, okay? How long is that secret going to stay safe? This instantly would have become the absolute scandal of the town. Mary, who is meant to be kept away, uh, kept away from, math, or, uh, from Joseph for sure, has become pregnant, pregnant. Their secret has become public shame. Of course, Matthew gives us, he, he, before we even get deeper into the story, Matthew gives us the little supernatural insight. This child came from the Holy Spirit. Uh, she was with child from the Holy Spirit. We know that as readers, but they didn't know that. The town doesn't know. They're assuming naturally that this baby came about naturally. Then whose is it? Whose baby is this? You can imagine the slurs unfairly, unkindly applied to Mary. And as for Joseph, everyone was wondering, did he somehow circumvent uh, his father and mother-in-law's protections of their daughter and impregnate her? Was another man involved? Either way, the specter of shame lies upon this brand new family that had barely come together, had not even come together. And this is what surprised me about this story. This is not primarily a story about stables and babies and gifts that I can't pronounce. The Christmas story is a story about shame and dishonor and the tension between freedom and love and the power of divine intervention and how one person's character ensured that God's plan would go forward to the salvation of the world. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph had two options in this situation, as far as he could see. He could divorce her quietly, and as a just man, he, he leaned toward that situation, or he could divorce her loudly. The word here, put her to shame, is translating a very literal phrase that says, it basically says, publicly expose her. It says, expose her. It's a, sort of a euphemism for a horrific scene of mob justice that uh, happened in the first century. You might remember the occasion recorded in John 8 when a woman who's caught in adultery is brought before Jesus and they prepare to stone her and they ask Jesus, what should we do with this woman? We're not certain if that, that story belongs in the book of Acts as far as belonging in the Bible, but it's certain that it records an event that took place, an, an ongoing trial that did happen in those days. This is what would have happened to Mary. All Joseph had to do was put in a word in the ear of the right people. It's, it's frankly, it's what would have been expected of him. He had been dishonored as far as he knew. He couldn't go ask Mary what had happened. It wasn't going to happen. And, and to have exposed her in this way, in a, in a perverse way, would have elevated him in the community, 
as a man of spiritual seriousness. He could remain an eligible bachelor. No one would wonder about the paternity of this child and think that it was his. He could remain eligible, and, and in fact, he would, in a sense, be honored. This was a good man, a, a righteous man, a just man, a good man. As far as he knew, at that point, the child wasn't his. He knew. Whose was it? He couldn't ask Mary. He didn't do it. She was guilty, right? He, that's all he knew. Her shame was hers to bear. That might make us wonder, as we read that word, resolve not to put her to shame. What is shame? Jackson Wu describes shame this way. Shame is the fear, pain, or state of being regarded unworthy of acceptance in social relationships. Now, that's a bit sterile. That's a bit academic, isn't it? Shame is, shame is different from guilt. Now, these two ideas are clearly related. In some ways, we, we see shame come upon us because we are guilty. We have done something wrong, and, and, guilt, and shame can be, in a sense, it's sort of our guilt gone public, where people see that what we've done is unacceptable. It's one thing for us to be guilty of telling a lie and knowing in our conscience and our hearts that we shouldn't have told a lie. It's another thing for our spouse or our friend or our employer to come to us and say, you told a lie, and you are now exposed and you will bear the consequences. Every one of us has experienced the shame that comes because of our own actions at one time or another. At other times, shame is a verb. Shame, shaming, something that others do to us, not necessarily because we're guilty, but because we haven't met their sometimes unfair expectations. Sometimes shame is something we experience because other people look down on us because they haven't understood our heart. Now, that's what happened to Mary. That's the shame that happened to Mary. She wasn't guilty, but she was nonetheless the object of intense shaming. Every one of us has experienced that kind of shame as well. At times, because we've done things wrong, but at times like Mary, because we are the object of unfair or unloving scrutiny. Imagine Mary walking through the market in Nazareth. She, she'd learned to stop doing it after a while the whispers behind her back, the unkind comments, the questions that hung in the air unsaid in each little stuttered conversation that she managed to start, the awkward walking up to a conversation in progress that stops the moment that you enter the circle, the sideways glances. You have experienced this shame too. Maybe, maybe you skipped Thanksgiving dinner or maybe you wished you could have skipped Thanksgiving dinner because you knew that kind of shame was coming for you. Because you hadn't accomplished what another family member had accomplished or what was expected of you. Maybe it was because of your marital status. Maybe you felt a person unacceptable. Maybe you felt bad about your body and you felt shame coming towards you, undeserved, unkind. Shame is painful. Shame is powerful. Joseph resolves then to divorce her quietly without public accusation. Without any defense of his own honor. He will hide her shame, even though it costs him something. These questions will follow him too. These, this shame will follow him as well. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Let's pause there. Son of David. 
It's a bit of a strange address for such a keen moment in Joseph's life. First centuries, we know, uh, there was an expectation uh, that a thousand years, we know a thousand years before Jesus was born, God had come to David, who is uh, God's king of God's people, Israel, and God had made a promise to King David. In 2 Samuel 7, it says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so for thousands of years, hundreds of years, I should say, uh, people were wondering, God's people were wondering when this mysterious new king, this son of David, would appear, who would establish a kingdom not constrained by space and time, but that would last forever and ever. Keep in mind also that if you glance up earlier in the book of Matthew, we read the very first verse that says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It seems as though Jesus is meant to be the fulfillment of that promise to King David all those years ago. And yet, how will Jesus become the son of David and fulfill God's promise to David to restore his people, to bless the world, to establish an everlasting, unending kingdom of blessing and justice worldwide if Joseph who is Jesus' connection to King David, decides to quietly divorce his unfaithful wife. The plot thickens. Suddenly, this isn't just a story about a young man choosing whether or not to dishonor his young and pregnant and apparently unfaithful wife. Instead, it seems as if, and this is the way Matthew tells us, we, of course, being good readers of the whole Bible, know this is not exactly true. It seems as if the promises of God are hanging in the balance. Joseph, the angel said, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not fear the angel said, and this is crucial. Before this, we had said, we assumed there were two options before Joseph. He could, we might say it this way, he could reflect his shame, her shame back onto her. He could refuse to absorb it. He could reflect it right back onto her, expose her immorality publicly, uh, possibly leading to her public shaming and execution. He could also, he could hide her shame. He could divorce her quietly. It would cost him something, but he could hide her shame, or there was a third option at hand. As the angel, not suggested, but commanded, he could, and this, this suggestion was so preposterous that it wasn't even on the table for Joseph before this moment. He could stay with her. He could go through with the wedding. He could take her in. He could attach himself to her permanently. Here's what that would mean. Rather than reflecting her shame back onto her or sort of hiding it, papering over it, he could embrace her shame. He could absorb her shame. He could join her in her shame. He could make her shame his own. Of course, we readers know, and now Joseph knows, that this child was not the result of Mary's infidelity 
but was from God's Holy Spirit, conceived uh, supernaturally so that the stain of human sin did not rest on him. That's very important. But can you imagine trying to convince the people of Nazareth that? Yeah, right. (laughs) Can you imagine the looks they'd get walking down the street with this new baby? Can you imagine the audacity people would say, you named him Jesus? You named him God will save us? This story would follow Mary and Joseph for years and years. And a scandal like this in the ancient world, much more socially connected, would would become a stain on your name that would last generations. Isn't God asking too much of Joseph? (laughs) There's more. She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Again, when you and I read this sentence, we miss something that would have astonished Matthew's readers. As much as we parents today, we, we think carefully about our children's names and we, we put great thought into them, the significance of our names is microscopic compared to what they were in that day and especially to the process of naming a child. When a child was born to a Hebrew home in the first century, uh, and I've heard even today there are a lot of similarities, the child would not be named until eight days after his or her birth. Uh, For a son, that would mean that was when they were circumcised and so forth, but they wouldn't receive their name. They might know what the name was. You think of the story of John the Baptist and Zechariah, who's meant to name John and can't. They ask him what his name will be and so forth, so you already know this. (laughs) But when the child was named, it was not just like I named my children by writing their name on a form. What happened was the father would raise the child. This is where we get that phrase, raising a child. The father would raise that child and as if making a sacred pronouncement over him or her, would induct that child into the family, would receive that child and would bestow upon that child a name, a first name, a family name. They would give them the family name which signified their security and belonging in that family. It was the father saying solemnly and conclusively over that child, you are mine. You are mine. The angel was not simply recommending to Joseph an adorable baby name, Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. He was not simply telling Joseph something incredible about the nature and destiny of that baby, although he was. The Lord was commanding Joseph to make that child his own. Jesus would not be a second-hand child in Joseph's family. The Lord was commanding him to claim him, to father him, to nurture him, to raise him, to treat him as if he were his own son, to become husband, to a spouse that he had every reason to reject, to become father to a son that he had every reason to refuse. Friends, if you and I were to know the salvation that comes through Christ alone, a teenage kid in Nowheresville, Palestine, was going to have to embrace lifelong shame. Why was this necessary? Matthew tells us immediately. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was just as God promised. 
This is how he works. But why like this? Don't we still just have to ask, why like this? I mean, wasn't there a less scandalous way, a less shameful way for God himself to enter the world? Couldn't Jesus have been born into, you know, just a nice sort of suburban family? You know, they couple married for years, faithful churchgoers. They got a little surprise, a little surprise visit from an angel. And wouldn't you know it, we're going to be the parents of the Messiah. Oh, great. Get rid of all the suspicious glances and the murmurs and the conversations that stopped every time they entered the room. Couldn't there have been a way for Joseph and Mary to sort of broadcast to the world and to uh, everyone looking on that uh, they had not committed adultery? This was not a suspicious, weird uh, situation. They were not guilty. Um, that Joseph was not re- did not go and impregnate Mary. That that Mary was that Joseph was not about to raise a child that was not his own. Maybe I don't know. Couldn't God's good at communication? I mean, he could get, I see those airplanes flying over Kinnick with banners. I've got a lot of ideas. They could, this could have been avoided. God chose shame for his son. This is a story about shame and dishonor and the tension between freedom and love and the power of divine intervention and how one person's character ensured that God's plan would go forward to the salvation of the world. Who are we talking about? The Savior had to come in shame. The Savior had to come in shame because Jesus is a servant king who came to experience all that we, God's broken, shameful children, deserve because we are a people deserving of shame, living in a world full of shame. Even if you're here and you don't recognize God's word as an authority on you, you know, you recognize surely that this is just simply true. If the whole of your life were to be projected on this screen one minute from now, 60 second clock down, (laughs) it's gonna count down and 60 seconds from now, everything about me is gonna be projected on the screen, everything, not just what you've done, not just as it appeared, but your internal life your thoughts, your inclinations, uh, your feelings, the things that you wish you could hide, would you leave the room? I would. I would avoid the shame. None of us have lived a life of complete honor, even just by our own standards. And yet God's word teaches us that every day we, we do live our lives before God's audience, before his face, the one who sees and knows all of our actions, all of our desires. Everything we've done is laid before the eyes of the one who knows all things. And we must cover ourselves as Adam and Eve did all those years ago for fear of our shame being seen. And just as there were three ways for Joseph to relate to Mary's shame, there were three ways that God could relate to yours. He could reflect it back to you. On your own head be it. He could let us pay our penalty. He could let us bear our own shame. We could get what's coming to us. He could hide our shame. He could paper over it. But that wouldn't be just. Or he could do what the angel called Joseph to do. He could absorb our shame. He could embrace your shame. He could enter into your shame and make it his own. 2,000 years ago, Joseph held up a little baby son that didn't really look like him. 
and he made the conscious choice that would cost him dearly, that would lead to lifelong shame, to make a child that was not his own, his very own, to give him all the blessings that his rightful son would deserve, that a, a, a truly born of his loins son would deserve, so that uh, he could be part of the family. This is why Jesus had to come in shame. If we would become part of God's family, if he would hold us up and speak his name over us, it would lead to his shame as well. But he couldn't help himself. We can't help but remember too, the shame that Jesus experienced in his birth was not the, the final act of shame, it was just the beginning. Um, his shame reached a crescendo on a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was stripped naked. His people would treat him like a filthy sinner. They would hurl insult at, at him. They would spit on him, mock him. Jesus' cross was not just an execution, it was a public shaming. Jesus on the cross was experiencing the shame that we deserve, the shame that we most fear, the shame that tends to motivate us. If we, if you and I, were going to be treated not as second-class citizens, second-class sons and daughters in God's family, Jesus would have to lose his good reputation. He would have to, forego, he would have to be misunderstood and, confu and confused for something else and have to be counted as a sinner, even though it wasn't true. Did you know that as you recall in your life, as we all have from time to time painfully and regretfully, our moments of greatest shame? Did you know as you recall those moments, Jesus is deeply moved in spirit? As you recall those moments of pain where it was something you did that led to that shame, whether it was something done to you, whether it was expectations you missed but never knew were there. Who knows? I don't know what it was. That Jesus himself wants nothing more than to stand beside you and with you and to whisper in your ear, I have already absorbed the shame for you. Its sting has been removed. Will you let me absorb it again right now? Even as those moments come back to mind, that is what he wants to do. That is what his spirit wants to do within you. To blot away your shame, to absorb it into himself so you can move forward into righteousness and life. In your most humiliating and embarrassing moments of shame, Jesus has not been standing on the sidelines or slowly inching away so that your shame doesn't get confused with his character he has been drawing as near as possible. Whatever the reason for your shame, here's Jesus' words on it. He wants in. And it cost him everything for that to be true. And he doesn't care. He joyfully goes for it. He joyfully joins you in it. He absorbs it from you. Do you know what the opposite of shame is? It's, it's not a blank slate. It's not that you walk into the circle and everyone just ignores you. <laughs> the opposite of shame is honor. And just as Joseph bestowed upon Jesus, the son that wasn't really his, he bestowed on him all the blessings that, that a true son would deserve, that is exactly what the Father does with us. When we come to the Father, we are not covered in our shame. Jesus has absorbed it. Jesus has embraced it. Jesus has taken it to the cross and into a grave. Shame died. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Your shame is dead. 
So now we stand before the Father and somehow, get this, God honors us. Whoa, I can live a whole life on that. The honor of God has come to me? Okay, I don't care what the world throws at me. They can shame me all they want. All it can do is either make me better or bounce right off of me. This is what God has done through his perfect son. This is what Christmas is about. It's about God coming in, God coming near at great cost to himself. We can become people of honor. And then we begin to live lives of honor. Now, what should this mean for us? What should this mean for our church? There are a couple of thoughts I had. First, let's commit to become a place where we refuse to reflect shame onto one another. The Christ-like move when we see anyone who is caught in pain, caught in weakness, caught in sin, caught in shame, let us do as Jesus did and get near and embrace them. Let's be a place where shame is not reflected, but absorbed and embraced. Secondly, let's commit to join Jesus in his shame. Uh, since sh- Jesus has sort of defanged shame, he's taken the sting out of shame. It can't do to us once it once did. Shame is powerful, but Jesus has taken away its power ultimately. And so we know that following Jesus in every place and time, uh, as we read through the book of Acts especially, has been followed by controversy. And it, to be honest, the, the name of Jesus, when it's represented truthfully to each culture, it brings shame. There's shame that comes. Jesus has joined you in your shame. He has absorbed your shame for you. And so my encouragement to you is join him in his. Let people know you are a Christian. Don't hide it. (laughs) Be you. Be a Christian with them. Uh, It may bring shame onto you. It will be okay. Jesus is with you. Perhaps, I I think especially of this holiday season, it's a great opportunity for us to reach out to our friends and neighbors uh, who don't have a place to worship or don't know Christ and invite them. I think we've got some little cards that you could hand to them. That might be a moment of great trepidation and fear for you. You're afraid of being ashamed. Jesus will be with you. He will absorb it. It will not hurt as much as you think. The opposite of shame is not silence or a clean state. Like we said, it's honor. Let's become not just a place where we don't reflect shame, but a place where we bestow honor on one another. Let's become a distinct counterculture of the shameful world we live in, shame-filled and shaming. Let's not let anyone around us wonder what we feel about them. Let's make how we feel exactly clear. When we see God's image in the people around us, let's point it out. Let's honor them. If you want to build an entire ministry on four words, here's what those words would be, I'm convinced, okay? Apart from the basics, okay? Jesus is the Lord, all those things. Here's what it would be. And and this is something I'm guessing hardly any of you heard this week. And maybe in the last month, maybe you'd say it's been 10 years. You want to hear it? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. How often have you heard that? Sincerely, meaningfully, into your heart and your life. Hardly ever, right? What if you did that for someone else? What if you noticed what was good in them and honored it? You gave it the weight that it deserved. Let's become a place like that. That's what Jesus can do through us. That's what he wants to do. To refuse to reflect shame, to absorb it and enter it with others, and to become a place where we build one another up in honor because that's what Jesus came to do. Let's do it. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the story of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the birth. We praise you 
Lord, that you are a God who does not stay aloof from our pain and shame. Lord, your character is to be strangely drawn to our brokenness, weakness, and failings. We praise you and we extend incredible thanks to you for not reflecting our shame back onto us, but for embracing it all the way to a cross, but beginning in a cradle, in shame that you didn't deserve so that you could absorb ours. Help us now to respond faithfully to this truth. You have things for us to do, Lord, in response to this word. You have things for us to change. We know it. You don't shame us into it, but you do call us into it. We want to respond faithfully. Would you bring to mind for each of us a way that we could respond faithfully to this word? Let us not let this slip away in the next few minutes. We pray that through this season you would encourage, challenge, comfort us as we consider the goodness and grace of Jesus for unfaithful people like us. Amen.